0: Camille Madison is an Aquina Wampanoag tribal language educator and organizer for environmental justice. Thank you, Camille, for being with us. Thank you. <laughs> Tell us about the
1: rights of nature. The rights of nature, I think um, is about being able to recognize that our ecosystems, you know, all of the life forms, um, whether they be plants, trees, the waters, animals, the creepy crawlers, mountains, rivers, Understanding that all of nature has rights, just as human beings have rights, and it's doing what's good for other species, what's good for the waters, what's good for the planet, doing what is good for the world as opposed to just what is good for human beings. The rights of nature recognizes that all life on our planet are deeply related and intertwined, which is in line with most, if not all, Indigenous traditions Um, We recognize that we're all connected. And because of that, our values and our decisions are based on what is good for the whole, for the entirety, not just us as humans.
0: So can you talk about your environmental activism and what are the, the issues that you're dealing with right now?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the first things I would like to mention is bring awareness to is the Pine Barrens here in um, southeastern Massachusetts specific. Um, They're very unique with very unique ecosystems, very unique plants and animal life and trees. And we know that right now in areas like Carver, Wareham and Plymouth, they are being clear cut. The Pine Barrens are being clear cut. And they're digging deep into the sand, strip mining the sand for what is called silica, which helps to produce those solar panels that everyone's, you know, putting on their houses. And there's, you know, lots of them, a lot of those farms, those solar farms all around. And so what that is actually doing is disrupting um, that ecosystem, that unique ecosystem, those plants, those animals, those habitats for um, those animals as well. And so we want to bring awareness um, to that. And one of the things that I am a goal of mine is to um, create a uh, cross community alliance between the Wampanoag communities with our our young people to, you know, educate them on what's happening here with the Pine Barrens, but also their responsibility to those Pine Barrens to speak up and advocate for those Pine Barrens as well. And so um, that's one. And then another another issue um, is happening, and we see them, if you live in Massachusetts, you see them off the coast, the wind turbines. Uh, right now, there's an initiative from the federal government to build a wind farm right off of the coast of Gay Head, which we call Aquinnah. And that is my tribal community. And it doesn't just affect our tribal community, but it affects A few, Mashpee, as well as Herring Pond, as well as Pequot in Connecticut, as well as Shinnecock in New York. These wind farms are being erected and we don't have enough knowledge to understand the effects on, you know, the waters, the aquatic life, as well as life on land. And so we want to get in front of that and we want to, you know, push for those answers um, so that we understand you know, how this does affect all of us, not just our tribal nations, but all of us who live on the island, all of us who live on the coastlines, because they're going to be right there, right off of the coast here in Massachusetts. And another um, issue specific to the island, as well as Cape Cod actually, is the multi-million dollar homes that are being built that are also needing these large septics, right? And, you know, people are building constantly and then they're not just building, but they're, you know, they're putting these large septics as well as, you know, they're bringing their sod from other places. And I don't think people really understand and think about what happens when a septic malfunctions and what happens when You bring grass or trees from another area, another ecosystem into this ecosystem because it does disrupt life. It does. It does. It it is an obstacle for our sustenance, really. And I say that because we even noticed um, a few years ago that there were no scallops, you know, at a time where our people traditionally, you know, fish and shellfish those 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 things that we normally would find weren't there in number you know so we know that the these things um are disrupting the ecosystems and disrupting the things that naturally grow and live here that the, those life forms and we don't really understand you know the the effects of how those things you know affect our livelihood You know, so those are just a few of the issues that I can talk about right now, um, just as far as, you know, just what is concerning us. Uh, Another issue is, you know, us being able to access the water and shellfish and hunt and forage freely as we've done. That's a part of who we are. It's a it's a it's been an ancient uh, tradition. We've always, you know, you know, sustained ourselves off of the land and uh, respected the life that's on the land, that's in the land. And so we want to, you know, have those rights going forward so that we can continue to sustain ourselves and continue to feed our families and our elders and take care of one another.
0: So can you talk about some of the challenges to the hunting and fishing and your access?
1: Yeah, so we've we just had some real um, obstacles, I think, with... You know, just people kind of, you know, if it's uh, privately owned or if there's people out there just wondering what we're doing, they're calling the police. You know, the environmental police kind of come out and they stop us and we're trying to let them know that, you know, we're tribal and these are our Aboriginal rights. And we just want to do what we've been doing and we want to continue to be able to do those things without interruption.
0: So what are you guys doing to educate people about this?
1: One of the things that we have you know, talked about doing is just trying to meet with EPOs, environmental police, as well as educate those who live on the waterfront as well um, by letting them know that, yeah, you might see some, someone that is going to retrieve whatever animal or blueberries, boxberries, whatever it is, where we're able to do that even if it is private land if we traditionally have hunted and foraged there that's still our right to continue to do so and so a big part of that is just being able to find ways to reach people that you know are out there in the world and live on the waterfronts and you know just educate them around our rights and a lot of people don't even know that we have them so it's important to let them know that we do and with regards to wind turbines
0: Have they offered anything in the way of an environmental impact study, or taken any kind of initial steps towards that? And how are you? uh, How are you doing in expressing your demands about that?
1: Yeah. So honestly, I have not seen a lot about the impact. I haven't seen if they've had a a report uh, or a plan on um, environmental impact. And these are the the questions that I feel like are at the top of our list to To ask, um, this is a very new issue for me, um, and I know that there's been conversation in the past, um, just with all the other wind turbines that have been erected around the island. But I know that this is definitely a priority of ours to um, be able to ask those questions. And from what I'm gathering, um, and this is all from you know just speaking with different people who are working in this field. But they don't seem to have a, a lot of understanding of the environment and how it will impact anyone. <laughs> um, so I, like I said, I think this is something that is at the top of our list to raise those concerns, even though we know that they're already in in pursuit of making this become a real thing. So
0: and with regard to the pine bearings, so silica is being harvested right now locally. And it's in hot demand, like you said, uh, in terms of the solar panel. So ironically, your soil being pillaged. Yes. Uh, so can you, what's the plan?
1: <laughs> that's that's a great question. And I think that, you know, as we just continue to learn and we continue to discuss these things, hopefully you'll see us, you know, you'll, you'll see a, a movement or, you know, you'll see some kind of action come from, understanding and learning and wanting to work with you know whomever is responsible for these you know these things that are harming our communities we want to make sure that we you know first have an opportunity to discuss these things with people and, and, and make them aware if they aren't already but in my understanding especially with the pine barons this is illegal it's not just them clearing pine barons they're working against the law and they know this um and so When you look at those lands, those pine barrens, they are strictly by law um, supposed to be either cranberry bogs or residential homes, and they're neither. And so what happens is they get these fees tacked on, right, because they're breaking this law, but per square foot of every parcel, you know, every every part of the land that they cut, they're making so much money that they can just eat these, these, these fines and it's nothing to them you know and so we know that this is not something that they're not aware of but there it's it's rather intentional i think that there's just you know the need for you know letting them know how you know detrimental this is but also just you know we're not going to continue to see you know our lands be desecrated and we just can't because that's our destruction that's to our you know our detriment so It's important that we look at that and we educate everyone around us, you know, including ourselves (laughs) and, you know, try to get that message out there um, because we do have to start thinking about outside of ourselves, you know, and how these ecosystems keep us safe and keep us able to breathe and live and, you know, have life the way that we, we see it, you know?
0: What are your thoughts on the, an indigenous centered climate action plan for a sustainable world?
1: Yeah, I think that indigenous people for a very long time, you know, our ways are ancient. Even here on on our homelands, we know that, you know, when people first arrived here, they could only speak of the beauty that they saw. And the beauty that, you know, is recorded, I believe in Mort's relation uh, as a book talking about the beauty of the land, the landscape. It wasn't just like that because that's the way it naturally is it was like that because that's what indigenous people have a responsibility to do to keep the land and to take care of the land and to beautify the land as you know it it naturally can be a beautiful place but we have a responsibility to make sure that it's growing that it's thriving and that all the things all the fruits that and all the the, the medicines that are supposed to come forward continue to come forward because we respect that that life and so when you talk about, you know, Indigenous-centered climate action plans, I think that that is the best sustainable way because we've been doing it for thousands of years. Um, and beyond that, when you talk about the uh, Red New Deal, we know that the Red New Deal is rooted in decolonization and the way that we think and the way that we see the world outside of ourselves. And when you think about the Green New Deal, it's rooted in capitalism. And so, I think we have to begin to ask some questions, you know, and begin to think a little bit harder about how we're we're moving and how we're allowing you know things to you know be called clean energy or and they're not you know when we think of solar panels and wind turbines, they're not green, you know they're they're very harmful, and so we have to come to terms that if we don't decolonize how we are thinking about ourselves and the world that's around us we're either looking yeah we're we're really looking at extinction so it's decolonization or extinction and i would hope that we choose to decolonize our our way of thinking before you know it's too late
0: what has the wampanoag language reclamation project brought to your community. Can you talk about teaching and learning the Wampanoag language? Yeah.
1: It's been a it's been such a I mean I came on very just recently 2016. So I've been with the project for a few years now, but the project started in 1993 founded by Helen Manning and Jesse Little Doe Baird. Honestly, I know that I was living in Boston at the time when I first started taking my first language class and I often tell the students that I teach now, you know, about my journey because it was one that just brought so much fuzzy, you know, warmth to my heart because I understood some things, you know, in learning the language. And so when you ask, you know, what has the project brought to our communities, you know, it's really brought a sense of homecoming a sense of understanding you know being able to dig a little deeper in ourselves within ourselves and 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 see how our ancestors even saw themselves in the world and our relation to one another our relation to the land to the water to one another and I think that that has been something that has been very special for me, even being able to pray in our language, you know, and feeling that connection to my ancestors um, has been such a wonderful gift. And I'm very grateful for, you know, all of my teachers. And I know that other folks who have been learning feel the same way. Um, And I just kind of uh, think about my, my, my classes during the pandemic, I was, part of teaching one of the uh, the first virtual classes of, of language, because before they were all done in person. And so when the pandemic hit, I was able to teach virtually and doing that, you know, I had students from New York, I had students from California, and even out of the country so far as, you know, Haida Gwaii, you know, so it's, it was very interesting to get their take and to feel like, oh, I'm I'm home You know, I'm connected. You know, I'm still, I can see all my family members and I can see my cousins and, you know, meet some new folks who I probably haven't met because they lived in the city or, you know, so it's like being able to acknowledge that, you know, the language coming home has been, you know, such a beautiful gift to all of us um, who have been partaking in that. And, you know, we're very grateful. And right now, as I teach at the, Widemu Katnatong Pakamuk, the Widemu school, just being able to sit with our young people, our young children, the youngest of our of our children, and and talk with them and teach them about their feelings and the weather and you know the days of the week and you know, numbers and all these wonderful things, and you know, hearing them you know, begin to start asking questions and talk about the language and they're proud about it. They're proud of being able to speak in their language and and introduce themselves and go home and teach their mom or their grandma or their grandpa, you know, some of what they're learning. So very, very grateful um, for the work of the linguists who have been putting in that work to get this project started. And I know that there are so many people within our communities who are grateful to be able to speak and teach, continue to grow with the language. Hopefully it continues to, to, to thrive and, and, and grow. Can you talk about
0: the boycott of Flemeth Mm.
1: Yeah, so where do I start? <laughs> So I know that you know in times past Wampanoag people you know enjoyed working at the museum and they enjoyed working there because there were people in positions of leadership who taught them how to do many different you know traditional skills and um taught them the history of the true history of what happened here and so one of the things that we're grateful for is that opportunity to have that because a lot of people brought their children to work and their children were there, you know, at the home site and, you know, living out of the We Too, you know, and cooking and, you know, weaving and building the We Too and starting fires and, you know, doing all the things that we would traditionally do. And it became such a wonderful learning experience. But unfortunately, some of our people were also told, you know, not to share the full story of the history the part that brought people to heart-wrenching understanding you know where it was wow that really happened here you know where there might have been some tears or there might have been some some tough points to make but we people were told not to teach that and to kind of keep with the happy you know pilgrim and indian story and that's a skewed history and we didn't want that and we we wanted to tell history how it happened as, you know, because it happened and um, whether it's sad or happy, we had to continue to control that narrative because it was a part of who we are today as well. And so with that, um, we also noticed that folks were being overlooked for positions within the museum and leadership roles. And so because of that, one of the things that um, a few folks who have gotten together have started to look at is the infrastructure within the museum and noticing that there are no Wampanoag people at the board level. There are no Wampanoag people at the executive director level, at any type of directors um, with any real authority. And so we question that, you know, you have Wampanoag artifacts, you have Wampanoag, give a Wampanoag home site, you need Wampanoag managers, you need Wampanoag directors, you need Wampanoag input. You know, and so we want and we're having this conversation right now with Plymouth Pawtuxet, Um, and we're hoping that, you know, something good does come out of it. But the first thing first things first is we want to acknowledge we want them to acknowledge the harm that they've caused people while working at Plymouth Pawtuxet in the past. And so ensuring that if we continue to work with them, if we continue to work with them, that we will be put in leadership positions and that where we won't be harmed. We will have a safe place to do this work. But if we can't do that, then we'll tell our story without the without the museum. But the interesting thing is, is when you tell the Pilgrim story, you can't tell the Pilgrim story without telling the Wampanoag story because they go hand in hand. So we wanna give them that opportunity. We've had meetings with them in the in the past and we're hoping to continue to meet with them and hopefully things work out. But um, right now we're seeing where things are just not, you know, as balanced as they could be. And so staying hopeful for that as well.
0: It's a real opportunity once you are in executive positions to use that platform to really reach all Americans because it's a toxic Mythology that is used to the 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 fanciful fake version <laughs> to yeah. to justify so much, and mm-hmm. it's a seed that is planted at the very foundation of children's lives, and it's the thing that is so threatening that Ron DeSantis is so afraid of African Americans mm-hmm. being taught, or everyone being taught, but mm-hmm. especially African Americans being uh-huh. taught their true history with political right. movements and all. Right. Is, You know, but the truth will set us free. (laughs) From there, we can build a better society. Yes. So it's so necessary. So has there been a talk like, hey, we're going to go make our own center and it's going to rock. And, you know, if you guys don't.
1: Well, right (laughs) right, right now, there are two museums within two of the Wampanoag communities. There is the Mashpee um, Museum. Which people are welcome to visit during the spring and summer, and I think some of fall. Um, but there's also the Aquina Cultural Center, which is also a place where folks can come and learn some Wampanoag history and culture as well. Um, and that's in Aquina, of course, on Martha's Vineyard. But as far as having a talk about our own, you know, unified museum, we're not there yet but if it, I mean, I mean, we, we know that, you know, um, historically Plymouth Pawtuxet has, you know, had a wonderful, you know, because of Wampanoag people has had a wonderful Wampanoag home site. And we see that, you know, it's not being kept in a good way and it's not being preserved, but because there's not a lot of Wampanoag staff with that knowledge to oversee and, and, and curate those, those things. So, um, We uh, we aren't quite at the place where we're saying, oh, let's go make our own. We still want to believe that, you know, Plymouth Paw Tuxet is a good place because it is. Um, But we want to make sure that it's also fair and we're respected as the more experienced people on our own culture, you know, the more knowledge people on our own culture. Um, So we want that respect. And we're waiting to see what Plymouth Pawtucks it has to say. And if they don't have that, you know, that same understanding, then I'm sure that conversation will come about for our communities to look into our own, you know, center, or our own museum, or our own, you know, education resource.
0: So can you talk about International Women's Day?
1: I think women are just so powerful. And I think that even in our culture, when you think of the word woman, it's a word that means she who has final say. We were and we are a matriarchal society and we believe in the power of women. We believe that because we are life givers, that we hold a sacred place in the community. And um, we have a little bit of a different understanding when it comes to all the great things that women offer as a resource to their home, but to their community and to the world. And so when I think about International Women's Day, I see that, you know, all around the world that women are leading, women are in the lead, you know, and doing great things. So I definitely celebrate all that is being done. And I am hopeful and praying for the time in which women are really trusted and respected and leadership positions and heard. Because I think that that's an important part of this evolution, this change that needs to take place. You know, we've been allowing the men to, you know, be up there in the the, the forefront. But I know that there's women back there, you know, in the background, you know, that they say behind every strong man, there's a there's a stronger woman, you know. And so you look at all these leaders that we've had in the past and Yes, that's that's true. You know, their their wives or their partners or you know, they've been very supportive and really the foundation for a lot of the work that we see, you know, that is happening around the world.
0: Thank you, Camille Madison for joining us today. Thank you so much for Thank being with
1: us. Thank you. Happy to yeah, be here. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also, check out Healing Wisdom Radio Show.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org.